A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, actually... I believe it was big swimming dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest. Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do, and why it matters. In the House and In the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Dr. Katie Allen is the Liberal member for Higgins in Melbourne. She won the seat at the 2019 federal election. Before politics, Katie was a medical researcher, and in 2015, Katie was elected the inaugural fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Sciences. At the 2019 election, the Liberals suffered a 6% swing against them in Higgins, enough to drop the Liberal majority to 53%, making Higgins a marginal seat for the first time. Katie, the first question I kick off every episode with is, what's a day in the life of a parliamentarian look like? What has your day looked like today? Well, it depends on whether I'm in Parliament or I'm here, but um, I pulled up my diary for today and uh, today I basically met with the council this morning, then I had a meeting with a local uh, electric vehicle charging station company um, and then I met um, about um, what we're planning to do with our election commitments yes. uh, with my staff and then I had a lunch for cancer with a local um, charity group where I was they're supporting them raising funds for kids with cancer. Uh, I'm now doing a Zoom with you and then I'm about to go on to the National Redress Committee meeting and this evening there's a local um, school function on. My son is actually leaving school and so it's the last school function at oh. one of the local schools. So I get to see all these parents I haven't seen all year, which is super exciting. Is this your youngest or your oldest yeah. or somewhere in between? Youngest. Yeah, no, I've got four kids and this is the last, the lucky last one, Porter Delarchi. He's had to work through, you know, 11 and 12 through COVID and all the Zooms and stay motivated. And he's finished. He's out the door. So 
that's it for me, 25 years of commitment to going to every school function I can possibly get to, being a class representative, a year representative, and then being chairman of school council. So been very engaged with my kids' schools. I think lots of mums are like that. I, and, feel, um, I feel like just... lots of experience for politics, oh. let me tell you. <laughs> I feel like just canteen duty is like enough in a week and you've got, you know, meetings coming out of your eyeballs. I don't know how <laughs> you manage it. Well, um, I, I, t- I tell you a funny thing. Yes. My, uh, and when my first son, because I've got two boys, two girls, when my first son finished his school, I said, so, you know, I've calculated back of the envelope, Monty, that um, I've actually made about 9,000 lunches. Oh. And I've only got 3,000 to go. So um, the last day I made a lunch for Archie, I went, mate, that is it, 12,000 lunches. It's crazy. <laughs> I <them> individualised. <laughs> I did a back of the envelope and it was it was a strange one. I grew up in Sydney and my school was on the other side of the Harbour Bridge and I did the back of the envelope of how many times I must have crossed the Harbour Bridge. Wow. It was, it was a lot. Um, you spent a lot of time in traffic, which you think, was that a downtime oh. or a wasted time? And, you know, you, I'm sure you were probably on the phone or listening to radio or doing something useful, like listening to podcasts. I think that's what everyone's doing now, aren't they? I did I did an interview with Tanya Plibersek and she spoke about basically try as a parliamentarian taking every little bit of free time then it becomes well for her she shared that she basically listens to podcasts to educate herself and to learn more and that's what I do in my private life as well. That's fantastic. How I think, do you... I think, I think women tend to do that. I mean, you know, women are the care, carers of the world. Yes. And, you know, maybe, you know, they've got a partner or they've got kids or, you know, a cat or ageing parents. It doesn't matter. But women love caring. So that means not just looking after ourselves, but like many of us, I think most of us look after somebody or something else. And so fitting it all in, it's terribly important. What do you do in your downtime, those, those tiny pockets of free time that you get in your diary? <laughs> Well, I love to talk. And so for me, going for a walk with my kids is really a great way to connect. Um, and I do love to garden, I have to say. Oh, I really got into gardening during COVID. Um, Katie, I, I want to take you back to the very beginning. Uh, I know that you, you've been in Parliament since 2019. Uh, what initially got you involved in politics and what was your path to joining the Liberal Party to get that sort of cog moving? Well, um, I have to say I was I, I was sort of in health policy, I suppose, with regards to being a director of a large research theme, travelling internationally, trying to change infant feeding guidelines or, you know, gene technology therapy, all that sort of stuff. So I'd been kind of advocating into, you know, different ministerial levels, whether it was state or federal level. Um, and um, Mary Wardridge actually said to me, gosh, you'd be so good in politics if it's all about running. And I kind of put on the back burner for quite a few years And then once I had a lunch with her and she said, what do you want to talk about today, policy or politics? And I said, let's talk about politics. And she said, you ready? And I said, why not? Let's just do it. So um, that was actually August the 1st, 2016. Wow. And to be honest, only only a few months before I had joined the Liberal Party. So in my sort of um, professional life, you've really got to be bipartisan. So I'd always been very bipartisan. I'd always you know, worked with both sides of government, whoever was in. Um, but when I started to run for pre-selection, I realised I actually had a bit of political um, legacy or political heritage. Um, and my mother died um, about 30 years ago, but she had been the Liberal Party secretary up in Albury. And I went up to Albury for um, a school 
um, function when I was chair of a local school, which has a boarding house, and I went up to the local boarding house sort of reunion um, in Albury where I was a keynote speaker, and I walked into the Albury Club and I went, I've been here as a kid putting out blue, bl- oh, no, that was mum's Liberal Party functions, and I kind of had forgotten that she'd been so involved because she was, you know, I was in my 20s when she died and I'd been in Melbourne for, you know, 10 years and I I kind of forgotten all of that. And then I, I bumped into some local party members and they kind of filled in the gap that mum was really politically active um, locally in Albury. And it, then when I joined the party, all the things that people were saying were so familiar and I realised that I was kind of one degree of separation from kind of all these people. So I, I did already have that sort of liberal upbringing um, and um, I suppose I've kind of lived a liberal life. And when I joined the party, it just it did feel like coming home in a sort of strange way, philosophically. That is such a beautiful thing to discover, you know, later on in your life. Can you tell me about, you use the phrase liberal life, what, what does that mean to you? Because, I mean, I've sort of been involved in the Labor Party and I I guess I could describe what I felt Labor life would be. So I just find it so intriguing that you use that. Yeah. 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 What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a good point because, you know, when you run for pre-selection, they want to know why, which you've been asking me. It's always hard to describe, you know, well, because I feel like I'm brilliant and I should be in parliament or something. What do you say? Better than all of you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, of course, you don't. But you sort of got to say you've got a reason. And people, why would you leave such a, you know, they'd say a glittering career in medicine and and move into politics. And and my view is in science is a contest of ideas. So this is just another form of that. And the decisions that are being made in parliament are the big decisions. They're the decisions that are affecting us each and every day. So I want to get inside the tent and really make these high-impact decisions. So for me, it was kind of the next, next natural step from being, you know, somebody who looked after patients and families to being a medical researcher that looked after, you know, disease, you know, pro- trying to prevent disease groups and trying to help the health system to, to moving into Parliament where I'm looking after, you know, the country, I suppose. So when I had to describe, well, what are your liberal values, I realised that um, as a child, my parents always put education first. Um, in fact, there was kind of a bit of a joke in the family that if you wanted to get something funded by mum and dad, just sort of give it a bit of an education sort of spin to it. So, you know, I like some really great books. They're so educational. Or, you know, I need a new suit because that'll help me pass my uh, med, med, med school exams. So, you know, everything was about education in our family. And that was because um, our family believed in improvement, self-improvement. And so my great-grandfather used to say you should learn two new things every day. I'm not sure it was two and not one. Two is pretty um, hectic. <laughs> yeah, pretty hectic. But it was about, you know, improving self-improvement. And, um, you know, that's a lifelong journey. So education is a lifelong journey um, and also serving others. So my family is a sort of family servers. There's sort of doctors and nurses and teachers and about giving back. And so... Um, the other thing about um, the Liberal Party philosophy is about um, it, it's okay to aspire, aspire to a better life, but also to give back when you have the privilege of having a better life. So, um, and, and I suppose the other thing is that sort of con- concept of um, uh, financial prudence, I suppose, you know, look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. So, you know, you don't waste money, you don't lean on other people for money. It's about you you look after yourselves, you look after your family, you work hard, you aspire for a better life, uh, you improve yourself. um, And, uh, you know, that is what makes for good society. And that is what makes for a great country. Katie, I read in your maiden speech that 
you are incredibly passionate about mental health and I can understand the linkages between your sort of your life as a health professional and I think that there's been no greater time than COVID that sort of shone the spotlight on the need for greater investment in mental health. Where did that passion stem from? Well, it's actually interesting. Um, you know, thank you for reading my first speech. Mm-hmm. I have to say uh, the story behind that was um, I I, uh, I was writing and I, and I felt like, wow, I, I don't know how to write a first speech. Like I haven't been in politics for very long. I haven't, you know, I haven't grown up in a political environment. And I um, remember thinking oh, I've got writer's block. And the Prime Minister's speech writer, I saw him at a dinner, Paul, and he said, how's that first speech going? I said, I've got writer's block, Paul. I've got a draft, but I just can't get past that draft and um but it's hopeless it's very self-indulgent I just you know it just seems so personal I just don't think it's right for for the time so to speak and um he came in he said do you want to have a listen can I have a listen to it and see if you're on the right track I said well that would be very helpful so he came into my office and and I read out the first couple of pages and, and he actually had tears in his eyes and he said that's word perfect just stick with that that is really where you need to be and that gave me the sort of confidence to say well maybe Maybe it is a bit heartfelt and, and that's okay. Um, but earlier early this year, I was asked to speak to the motherless um, daughter's um, yeah. keynote address and they got they asked me to speak and I read out the first and last page of my first speech and said, and I said it was only after I wrote that first speech that I realised it was actually an homage to my mother um, because um, she was clearly sort of guiding me through that first speech and it was it, it really reflected you know, the difficulties of losing a mother, you know, my father died um, to Alzheimer's. I have a cousin who um, you know, committed suicide. Um, my brother has schizophrenia. And those all things just sort of poured out onto the page. And I suppose for me uh, as a doctor, I know everyone has their cross to bear, everyone, everyone, um, you know, no matter whether they're, you know, anywhere in, anywhere in the world, everyone has something that they battle with. And, and I suppose for me human connection is central to who we are and relationships are the most important thing and I suppose I was describing some of the some of the things that I had battled with and I know that so many millions and millions and millions of people around the world battle with similar circumstances so it's sort of a connection to to other people I suppose and for me if you can't look after your health and that includes your mental health then you can't participate in society in a meaningful way so those who can't look after their health and mental health they need help from us um, and, you know, we need to work hard to look after our own health and that includes mental health as well. So I'm really proud of some of the, the work that this government's doing to, to bring more funding to this really, really important area. Katie, I have to say, I wish that every single Australian would, I know it's a big, big task, but if people were to just sit down and read some parliamentarians' maiden speeches, I feel like we would have such a kinder, more empathetic outlook on our parliamentarians. <laughs> like, I think we would just be reminded that as much as we sort of get thrust into these polarised ideologies through the major parties most of the time and this very adversarial context in like question time and things like that I think if people were to read these maiden speeches they would realize that parliamentarians are just people who have had lives who have had struggles and that colors why they've gone into politics 100% Alicia and I think um I think there's this issue about uh, the impact 
of what someone's actions are on somebody else versus who they are as a person. And I remember when I was a kid and there was kind of a group of mean girls and I always felt a bit frightened of them, you know, for what passed, you know, they were, they were the tough girls. They, you know, they, they, they were kind of, you know, a bit of a clique of girls. And mm-hmm. I remember being in a shelter shed um, one lunchtime with just this one of these other girls called Anesh and I sat next to her and we shared our lunch together and she was the nicest person. And I realised yes. when, you, when you bring it down to an individual, everybody, everybody is doing something for a reason and, if, you know, just understanding that, you know, if they're angry, there's usually a reason for that and to try and understand that reason and to help them. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the opposition are angry with us, but that's because they want to be in the driver's seat. They want to be in government. That's perfectly understandable. Uh, that doesn't mean that I won't debate what I think is the ideas. Mm-hmm. I, I, my view is play the ball and not the man. And I hope uh, that I do that, that I hold myself to account to those standards. Um, but the, the contest of ideas, if we're, you know, having big arguments, it's usually because, they're tough decisions to make and we need everyone to be putting their point of view forward so that we can find the common ground uh, to lead the country to a better future. Katie, you've been in Parliament for a couple of years now. Um, how have you found that experience and do you feel you're, you're very privileged to be like, I've spoken to many guests on the podcast at this stage um, and you're one of the few that are in that position of power. How have you found government and uh, what have you, what are you proud to have achieved to this point? Well, thanks, Alicia. I mean, um, you know, power is kind of a sort of seems like a bit of a dirty word. And the question is, well, what power do you have to have an impact? And mm-hmm. I suppose that's what surprised me is I, I like to look at it as influence because yes. I think it's a shared influence. And, in fact, that's why I think more women need to be in parliament. I think we're, we're better at understanding the team sports approach um, so I've been the most thing, the thing I've been most surprised about is the ability to have an impact. I, I have to say, uh, it, it, it's been a huge privilege, and you've used that word such an appropriate word, a, a huge privilege and an honour to represent my community and their voice. Uh, and that's what I am. I'm a representative. That's why it's the House of Representatives. That's not to say I'm a delegate. So a delegate means you're being told you know, you must go and represent this view. I'm, a, I'm meant yes. to represent the people of Higgins and there's 110,000 of them. And I can promise you they do not agree on anything. So I've got to try and work out that, you know, line that represents my electorate um, in the most ethical, you know, value-based way that I can. And to me, that re- that means representing people who may not have voted for me as well um, in the best way that I can. Um, but the influence that you can have is quite profound in small ways. And, and I think it's, it was um, one of the Roosevelt's that said, it's amazing the impact you can have if you're happy for others to take the credit. And, yes. you know, that's that. there's a humility in that, which is that um, I'm a voice, and, and I get criticised by my team for saying this, I'm a voice to government. And the reason I say that is I was told off by one of my constituents who was a constitutional lawyer that I am not the government. Um, uh, technically, I am a in the legislature, not in the executive, and the executive is the government. But um, apparently it sounds like I'm, you know, I'm sounds trying to Sounds like avoid... a nerd in your election. <laughs> well, he's definitely a nerd around, you know, I like to be exact and technical myself. But the yes. point is that I don't make the executive decisions. I'm not the minister. I'm a voice to the minister. And there's no doubt that I have more influence um, than either the opposition or a crossbencher or, indeed, the average citizen. So I do have influence as a backbencher to the government, or you could say within the government if we're not going to be technically correct. But the point is I can 
you know, I do meet with the ministers regularly. I pick up the phone to the ministers regularly, including the Prime Minister. Well, I text the Prime Minister and I have meetings with the Prime Minister. I probably don't pick up the phone that often. You know, you have to have a level of respect for the hierarchy. But there's definitely, I speak to many ministers, um, you know, many times in a week. Um, and you do have an influence um, with regards to the formation of their decision making. Tell me how you're feeling about the election coming up. Am I right in saying that Higgins is a relatively marginal seat? Yes. I mean, I think there's a concept of marginal versus um, stable. And so Higgins is regarded as a pretty stable seat. We did have a, um, I did have a massive swing against me at the last election. um, And I'm very cognizant of why that was. And I've worked hard each and every day to make sure that, um, the people of Higgins who care deeply about climate action are heard. Oh, so do you, to, have you really that. drilled down that it, you feel like it was action on climate? That I think I think there was a combination of there was a change of leadership and there was no doubt that yes. people said to me, we're not happy that uh, the cha- there has been a change of leadership. Uh, though that being said, we've been very pleased with Scott Morrison's performance and his response to COVID and his both health and economic response to COVID. So they're very, they've been very warm to Scott Morrison as a Prime Minister. So I think that initial anger has abated. Um, so there's a few percent um, of the swing would be related to that. Uh, I think there'd be a few percent of the swing related to the fact that, you know, I'm not Kelly O'Dwyer as a new person, so they were working out who I was. Yeah. And then there was a few percent that were dissatisfied with the, the Liberal Party's approach to climate action. And, again, I think that's been, you know, basically people are saying they're very, very pleased with how much we've moved on that. And how are you personally feeling by the prospects that uh, I, I, I covered it in an earlier episode with Senator Holly Hughes um, a, a, because her road to parliament was so tricky and difficult and there were challenges along the way. I think people forget a lot of the time that it must be quite a personal experience to be up for election how are you feeling about I I can imagine like it sounds like you've enjoyed your time in parliament so far and I imagine you would like to continue your role in parliament how do you feel about that sort of jeopardy situation where you're kind of having to go out and communicate your message and what you've achieved yeah it's it's interesting Alicia I mean I think I'm actually really excited for the campaign um you know it's so thrilling to be in the sort of cut and thrust of the campaign where People are engaged, they're listening, they're, they're wanting to make a decision and, and it's, you know, in some ways like a horse race, I suppose, and they're backing their winner or not. Um, and it can get very contested. But uh, this will be, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, the next election will be by May, um, in which case I will have contested a third election within, you know, three and a half years. Um, which is quite a lot of elections because I, I ran in the state election in November wow. 2018. I ran in the federal election in May 2019. And then there'll be, you know, April, May or March, April, May uh, in 2022, a third election. So I've had lots of experiences. Um, and, I, you know, I, I've got so much warmth and support from the electorate. Um, you know, I'm kind of excited to see whether they're going to give me a tick to say, yep, we like what you've done. And, you know, from day one, I've had a very strong position on climate action. I feel like I've delivered on that. It's a very exciting time for Australia that we're pivoting to this kind of front foot with regards to leaning into climate action. I, I believe I've had a huge influence on our response as a, as a nation to COVID. I feel very proud of, of what I've done to contribute to that. And, and I've also done a huge amount in the community, even though we've had a lot of lockdowns and had to do a lot of Zooms. You know, I just get every week, I get 
you know, three or four letters from people personally thanking me for what I've done for them personally or what I've done to help their family. And, and that's deeply satisfying. That is so nice. That, that is, I can imagine that would be very satisfying. Katie, on the climate, action on climate topic, what about the coal situation? And I know that you must be so deep into the detail, so you can probably provide a really interesting perspective because I feel like from a young person's perspective watching COP26, I feel like a straight, the I heard an address from the president of COP26 and he basically was sort of lamenting that he couldn't get the conference all the way there and there was sort of this watering down of the language around coal. And I was wondering what your insight into that was. Yeah, look, I think that, um, you know, in politics, you know, if you go in with a sort of, uh, you know, bright-eyed view that you're going to get 100% of what you want all of the time, then it can yeah. be frustrating. I'm kind of a bit older and wiser and, um, you know, I've lived in a, as an executive in a large institution. I've worked at the Royal Children's Hospital for 25 years. So you understand when you've lived in these big organisations that, um you know, success with regards to a negotiated outcome is the art of compromise. Yeah. And so there are some things that you, you just can't compromise on and other things that you can compromise on. Um, so so then the question is, what does that mean from, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could t- turn off coal tomorrow? The answer is we're phasing down coal. So even though that might seem like, oh, so disappointing, it's not exactly what, you know, the activists might want, I think that they should take away from that there has been a significant movement. So those who, uh, there'll always be not enough for one and too much for the other. So the, the phasing down of coal is quite a significant step forward for the world. Um, I'm feeling incredibly hopeful and positive about the steps that we are moving towards because instead of it being a sort of bespoke small group issue, it's now become a broad global issue. And I have a real belief in science and technology and research and development's capability to deliver the solutions that the globe needs. And what was what most striking? I asked the Prime Minister this. I said, what was the most striking thing for you about, uh, about Glasgow? And he said it was the fact that private enterprise was there in large numbers. He said they were not there at Paris, but there's $100 trillion of money from private enterprise being put on the table, and that is going to make sure that we're going to drive the commercial solutions that we need. So it's one thing to say, the government needs to do all the heavy lifting. It doesn't. It needs to do the partnership lifting. It needs to unleash the private capability because the government governments don't make EVs. They're not the ones who, mm. um, you, know, dis- do, you know, help you with your solar panels. So, so there has to be a partnership. So my, th- my view is the government's role is to kickstart innovation. It's to um, provide opportunity, but then you need to let the free market deliver the solution. And so... You know, we've got to pick off the things that are, you know, the low-hanging fruit to start with, but which we have already been doing. Um, but I believe that there is a pivotal moment that has now just occurred with our country pivoting to a 2050 target. And just today I had this EV company come to see me and they're all ready to go and it's all just starting to happen at great speed now. So it's no longer a matter of if and when we do something. It's now all about the how and the deliverables. And I could geek you out on what those deliverables are, um, but, you know, the five now six stretch targets are really, really critical for commercialisable, scalable solutions so that we can deliver what we need to deliver for the world's climate action. 
And it does seem like the free market is heading in that direction. Katie, I saw you, this is taking, this is pivoting us in a bit of a different direction. But at the beginning of the year, when we were sort of in the depths of you know, Brittany Higgins had bravely told her story and it seemed like there was just sort of story after story about toxic parliamentary culture. And I watched this episode of Insiders and it was you and Sarah Henderson and you were, I think it was just after the sort of um, desk incident, I'll call it, Uh, you were talking about toxic culture and you were speaking in a way that was so candid and so refreshing and so different to what you often and I get that like David Spears, Barry Cassidy, that it's it's a pretty intimidating environment for a parliamentarian, but in, in an interview setting. So you get these like sort of half answers or non-answers and both you and Sarah were just so it was it was really heartening as a former staffer who was sort of feeling like no one's really talking frankly about these issues to see you talking so directly how has your it's been a big year when it comes to the treatment of women both in society and parliament house how have you felt consuming that media um, look, I have to say the first few months of the years kind of ended up being about the culture wars and I feel that there is a broader issue for women in society, particularly in Australia, and I think that parliament is just one element of that. So I have actually done quite a lot of work in a bipartisan way about women in leadership but also women's voices and I hear from, you know, women saying we're kind of, we're kind of tired of what I'd call, and this is, kind of my term, but casual sexism, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, when you see Brittany, the Brittany Higgins instance, there's no doubt that it's, it, it's an abhorrent situation. It's, it's, it, it, everybody can agree that's just not right. It's, mm-hmm. And if it's, if the allegations are proven, uh, you know, it's just horrendous crime, if that is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things no one will disagree on. It's the issue of what I would call the slippery slope of casual sexism where you know, women are talked over, women are looked over, women are not listened to, women are fighting for their safety, women don't have financial security, women um, are passed over with regards to promotion or they're talked down in a conversation or their voices are not heard at a political discussion mm-hmm. um, or they... Uh, don't have the independence from their partner that they need to escape a violent environment. So those sorts of things are really hard to touch and feel. And so for me, the Brittany Higgins provides a light. They said, yes. this is not okay, but allows us to have the broader conversation about all these other things that are not okay. And I believe that we're on a journey and, um, you know, I'm not um, an academic in this area of gender studies, but kind of the way I see it is that, um you know, women in many ways haven't participated at the top level of decision-making in our democracy um, and but have been slowly entering into that field. And that started with in the 60s where my mum, you know, she had four kids but she went on the pill at some point. She said, I can't believe it's taken this long, you know, I can actually choose when and how to have my children. And that biological empowerment meant that women could then choose how to space their children and they could go back uh, you know, or not go back, you could get, it, it could get more education, then they could enter the workforce. And then we have in the 70s, women entering the university sector in large numbers, so they were getting higher paid jobs. And then women 
you know, breaking the ceiling, you know, in the 70s and 80s with regards to glass ceilings of careers with people like Margaret Thatcher being first female prime minister and it moving all the way through. But we're at the point now where we're talking about the um, equality of opportunity within the home. And so uh, men doing as so much housework as women, um, are men listening to women around the dinner table, um, are men um, allowing women to participate in political opinion. And so for me, we're on this journey and it's a very exciting journey, actually. It's very exciting to be part of that. Um, and I do believe that the workplace, um, the political environment, society is better when women have an equal place at that table so when we have more women inside the tent it makes for a richer uh, more balanced society and it represents who we are as a society I agree 100 percent um you you mentioned in your maiden speech childcare as a particular interest and passion of yours and I guess I'm sort of I'd really love your opinion on some sort of practical levers that you would like to see the government pull, your government, well, not your government, yeah, who knows. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, uh, Daily Telegraph writing it up now. (laughs) Um, what, What do you think those practical policy areas are? Because I always hear this stuff that's like really just motherhood statements where it's like, we need more women on boards. And like, yes, of course we do. But what are those policy levers that we pull to make that happen or in the childcare space, what can we practically, what would you like to see done to help women in a practical way? Look, I absolutely believe that, you know, childcare, you know, is non-negotiable for me. And I said that, I think, in in my first speech. Um, But to me, childcare and support for childcare isn't just the first three years or even the first five years. It's actually the first, whatever, 18 years. I mean, you know, Mm. here I am 25 years later, I'm a free woman. You know, I've got no dependents. Fantastic. My family are the most important thing to me. They're not, hopefully, never going to go away. So they're something I need to work with, not around or despite. And, you know, everything I do has them front and centre and they're, the, they're my rock. And so um, that's where women need help with childcare support, which means not just the early years, you know, when, they, when they're wanting to get back into the workplace, but also um, when kids are at school, after school, sometimes weekend support or, or, you know, flexi time. So what I take away from that is that, we need more women-solved, you know, women-orientated solutions. And when I speak to women in my electorate, and I have surveyed on them on this, what they want is choice, flexibility, and um, and affordability. Yeah. And so, with choice, um, there are lots of women who are using lots of different things. They're not just using childcare centres, which are all well and fine. They're using their parents or their neighbours or their husband, and they want to be able to flex around all of those different choices. And when I talk to them about what they might like with regards to a solution, and this is breaking news here on your podcast, so this is going to come back to bite me at some point, but, you know, they say things like tax deductibility because it means they're in charge of how that money is spent. Tax deductibility for childcare? Childcare, yeah. Wow. Okay, can I push you on another piece of potentially breaking news? Or I'm just, I, I like getting into the nitty gritty. And one thing that 
I was just so taken aback by this year. I was watching an episode of Q&A because I'm so cool in my spare time. And, <laughs> and I, I would describe myself as I'm in corporate communications. I'm starting to I'm, – I'm engaged. I am about to sort of reach my 30s and my partner and I are thinking about kids. And I'm starting to get – you know, promotions little by little. And I was watching this episode of Q&A and I found out that it's the first time I've looked at paid parental leave through Centrelink. And I realized that as a woman, the minute that you earn more than $150,000, you can't get paid parental leave, but that can't be transferred to your partner. What do you think about something like that that is clearly so gendered? Yeah, it's more complicated than that because of the way that the tax system um, works. And so it, it, <laughs> there are people who say it should be, you know, based on the the, the lowest um, earner, not the combined earner. But yes. look, it, it, that's why tax deductibility in some ways can help solve some of these issues in the way that we use the tax system to incentivise people rather than um, disincentivising them uh, with subsidies Um you know, there there are some benefits the way the system is at the moment, but that's why it's a very, very contested space from a policy point of view. And there's not really any super answer at the moment because what happens is the more subsidies they're giving, um, unfortunately, the more, uh, you know, increased the childcare um, costs become because the, the providers can just put the prices up. So that's why there's a bit of a sort of partnership approach between government and subsidies, which is a good way to go. So make sure that we have um, um, an ability to try and contain the costs of childcare rather than just increasing the profits of the childcare centres. But for me, it's not just about the first three years or, you know, the first year of paid parental leave because, as I said, it's an ongoing issue. It You know, it's an issue where you may, you know, have your children. The problem doesn't solve itself after the first six yeah. months or 12 months of paid parental leave, it's actually an ongoing issue that um, if you've got to get to a work function after hours, who's going to look after the kids? And if your parents mm-hmm. have died, as they had in my case, you know, who's going to help you support that? So it's it's kind of a whole of society approach. And I think we need to stop thinking about children as women's problem. In my view, children are society's um, gift and uh, it should be seen as a great privilege uh, to have Children and society should be supporting uh, the fact that we have children, and 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 also acknowledging there are some people um, who can't have two children um, or choose not to have children, and that's okay as well. Yeah, and I think that I, I feel like we're moving. I think I feel like we we are in this moment where we're moving in this right direction because you can start seeing the private sector step up to the plate as well. I've been sort of reading things about um, there, there's a. Co- corporate in Sydney who's now paying their um, workers, super, female workers who go on maternity leave, pay uh, superannuation, which I just think is such a step in the right direction because I get really nervous about that super gap when I, you know, if I take sort of two or three years off, what happens to my super? Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, I think the issue is that um, in general, we, uh, women are taking, um, you know, they're not taking their super with them. So there's been quite a lot of fantastic legislation that um, the, assistant, the, the minister, not the assistant, the minister for superannuation, Jane Hume, has done with regards to making sure that women have certainty around their super and they can take them from job to job or they um, they don't lose it when they stop. There's a lot of sort of a lot more flexibility around super at the moment, which is um, is, is 
de- dedicated to making sure that women can build their super nest um, quicker and better than previously. And, and, and I encourage your listeners to go and have a look at some of those uh, new policies that have just been passed this year. Katie, you, you're sort of emblematic of, emblematic of someone who has a woman who has, you know, had a full illustrious career and then just thought about politics and gone into politics, what do you, how do you think we get more young women and also professional women to think about politics as an avenue for them and any practical advice about how to get involved and get pre-selected? 100%. Yeah, I do a lot of mentoring, both formal and informal. Um, and what I say is firstly, join a party, uh, find a mentor, seek advice widely, and then follow your own gut instincts. But um, what I say is when you choose to join a party, um, I'd encourage those people who really want to have a high impact to consider joining a major party uh, because a lot of women um, are attracted to um, the tactical side of an independence or minor party. But if you do that, then you'll never be able to be a minister in a government. Um, and let's face it, it's the executives that make the de- real decisions and um, spend the real money that has the real impact. So, you know, I think that uh, the ability to be a minister in a government, so to be in the executive of a government, um, is real, really where the influence of government is. And that's what I think more women should aspire to. So I suggest that they join a major party. That's so interesting because we have seen this sort of rise of this Voices Of movement and it does seem to be very sort of a lot of female candidates. Do you... How does that play out for you in Higgins? Because I think a lot of people would see sort of parallels between Higgins and Warringah, where Zali obviously came to power. What do you think of that Voices Of movement? Well, the first thing to say is I don't see Zali as coming to power because oh. um, she's a member of parliament. So in the nice possible That's way shady, but... <laughs> So, you know, I just see she might be influencing, but yes. I don't know if her influence has been as big as that she would hope it might be. Um, and um, that 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 um, winning that siege was a reaction to the current sitting member. Um, and that's sometimes what happens when people, you know, have a reaction to a, a government, particularly the Prime Minister of the day, was um, basically the Liberal Party members there decided that they wanted to see a change. And so it was a very bespoke issue that um, elevated Zali to that seat. And the same with Indi. I come from Indi. Um, I have a lot of family and friends up there. And um, Kathy McGowan won that seat as a reaction uh, to a particular issue with yes. regards to, to the local Liberal member there at the time. Uh, so those two seats uh, were particular to those peculiar situations. Now, that's not to say that um, you know, they're contributing as local members of parliament. That's wonderful. Um, but I think we need to make sure that we have more women inside the tent of the executive. And I really would like women to make sure that they have that ambition to be one of those people. If you get re-elected at the next election, is that something that you have ambition for to sort of join the executive? Well, it's one of those things where you uh, present yourself and you hope that people choose you. I mean, that's all you can do. And whether it's be to be presenting yourself for pre-selection, presenting yourself for an election or presenting yourself uh, for promotion. Um, you know, I humbly think I have um, a good, good skill set. Um, I believe I've worked hard and, you know, I hope that I one day do get promoted. But, you know, there's a lot of considerations that a prime minister makes 
when they decide, and I say they because it could be he or she, who knows, but when they decide who they want in their team. Uh, Katie, as a last question, and I've enjoyed this conversation so much, coming into the next election, what are you going to be, what are your conversations going to look like on the doors of in your electorate? What will you be talking to those voters about? Well, I think the first thing to say is we've been through a tough couple of years with COVID um, and people have told me that they're grateful for the contribution I have made to ensuring that our country has navigated COVID um, in one of, with one of the strongest health responses in the world and one of the best economic outcomes. Um, and, you know, I'm very proud of Australia having one of the highest vaccine rates in the world and having one of the lowest mortality rates, something that we should all feel collectively proud of. So many people putting their arms forward and doing the right thing and following the public health measures. Um, and I'd like to, I'm very proud of the small contribution I have made to that. Uh, secondly, I think we should be really excited by the future um, of um, the, our post-COVID economic recovery um, and the fact that what I want to see uh, is ensuring that we grab the opportunity to become a clean energy superpower with both hands. And that means making sure that uh, we, we pump prime our education sector so that we have the kids of today um, ready to take on the tech, tech jobs of the future because not only they are exciting STEM-based um, jobs, they're really well paid as well. So it improves the prosperity um, of people if, they, if they're engaged in, you know, being ready for those jobs of the future. Um, and then Australia is extremely well positioned as a smart and capable country with plentiful resources uh, so that we can all have, you know, clean power, clean cars, uh, clean air, clean waterway and a clean, clean food supply. So, you know, for me, it's been about covid uh, climate, and then the work that I've done in the community with election commitments, community grants, and answering the questions that my 110,000 constituents ask me in person via email at listening posts um, each and every day. And um, there's too many, too many questions and too many things I've helped solve to, to be able to list off. But I will read you one little letter that I got. Oh, just today, yes. Which was, um, Dear Katie, I can't tell you how delighted I was to receive your handwritten card for my 80th birthday. Letters and cards are becoming a dying art. Um, as to celebrating with family and friends, uh, that is a future experience as both my children live overseas in Hong Kong and London. So the sooner the borders open, the better for us. You might whisper in ScoMo's ear. Many thanks for your contact with best, best wishes. And then this one, which was, uh, dear Katie, was real thrilled to receive your handwritten card acknowledging my 90th birthday. I've spoken to you during um, the election time and found you to be a very caring politician. And this card emphasises my first impression. So I get a few of those every week and, and it's just very humbling to, to be able to serve my community. And how beautiful for you that I feel like there's a parallel there with your maiden speech and you spoke of the importance of letters and handwriting letters. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So That's it's right. really, really special that now you are <laughs> on the receiving end of these letters. Yeah. Katie, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really grateful for your time and best of luck in the election. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. And thank you for um, doing this series because, you know, I think women have different conversations. So it's great to be chatting as women about the things that we care about. So all strength to your arm, Alicia. I think women are better at having a forthright discussion without taking it to that toxic place of aggression. 
So it's been a really nice experience (laughs) for me as well. And I love that I can like, I, I love that I don't feel afraid to just you know ask you about coal or uh, and I don't feel I don't feel like I'm gonna get it's also a role of journalists as well at our sort of like major I I think some in in some way you know insiders doesn't really it's not really the environment that's going to get you a really fruitful answer that could lead to policy progression. <laughs> yeah. Well, the one thing I would say for your 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 listeners is yes. go and have a look at the CCPI report, which is the Climate Change Productivity in- Index. And um, uh, if you have a look at the graphs for each country, you'll find that we are on a, par- a Paris-compliant pathway, just like the UK is. But you, the US, Canada and New Zealand are not. And if you have a look at the big um, resource countries, and we are a big resource country like uh, China, India, Russia, their pathways are in the opposite direction. So I know there's a lot that we have to do, a lot of work, but I believe we are doing better than people give credit for as a country um, and we've got a lot more work to do. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, there's a lot more hope for the future than sometimes you might think from the media. I'm glad we have, I think a lot of young people would be pleased to hear that and we'll go away and look at that report. And I'm glad that we have a strong climate advocate in the government sitting sitting in the (laughs) caucus room. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Katie. I really appreciate it. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.aikenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> next question. <laughs> See ya. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered.